0: Formed with your community. The Morning Drive on FM 96.3 and AM 620. WVMT. Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here. And joining us online now is Emile Rem. author. He is the author of a book called Heart of New York. Good morning, Emile.
1: Good morning.
0: So let's start out with there's a couple of things we're going to talk about with you, but let's start out talking about the book you've written. Is this is The Heart of New York, is that your second book?
1: Yes, it is. I've got three or four more coming. I've got one coming in October as well.
0: All right. So can you tell us a little bit about The Heart of New York? Because I know um, that in the beginning of the book, or in the foreword, I guess, you talk about how you had 15 different people looking at each chapter And some people had read the previous book and had criticisms until they realized what the book was really supposed to be about.
1: Yeah, the the stories are little short stories about the time I took with my family in New York at Christmas time. I didn't want to go to New York because it was cold and miserable. Every summer we were able to take my family to the Bahamas. So this the weather was absolutely miserable. There was wind and there was snow and so forth. So we really ha- hardly got a time to visit anywhere or, or do anything except to spend time with the family. And so the stories themselves, because of the weather, the stories themselves became quite bleak. Um, and they talk, instead of talking about scenery in the summer on an island in the Mediterranean, they talked about values and what was right or what was wrong in our eyes. Now, it, and, it, um, go ahead. So that's really what we talked about.
0: And it, it came to be because one of your sons said, oh, we're going to go to the Bahamas again? And why can't we go to well, where the action is, New York, right?
1: Well, exactly. And uh, this, uh, these kids were in their teens at the time, and this particular kid decided that he was going to be a rapper uh, in his afterlife. So he wanted to go to New York. He wanted to go and visit Harlem. And so that's what we ended up doing, uh, ended up, we managed to stay in a hotel facing uh, the park. And, of course, everybody wanted uh, a view of the skylight uh, uh, in, in um, Manhattan. And so we, instead of facing the, the park, we went and faced the, uh, the skyscrapers. And suddenly these skyscrapers were like, you know, a couple of feet. It seemed like they were a couple of feet away from us. We could see nothing except all these people in hundreds of offices <laughs> facing us across the road. So you know, it, it wasn't just a matter of finding something that we didn't like; it was also uh, quite frightening as well. <laughs> yeah. But then, well, the stories themselves all look on expecting one thing and seeing something else. Yeah. By the end of the end of the book, we we were so overwhelmed by the generosity of the people uh, in New York, and. When I write these books, they're really comparisons of people that I meet along the way, and people we've had we've, we've, uh, that are in Calgary, where we come from. So the first story was about the was called The Heart of New York, and the, and always the titles are always two different meanings. So the heart of New York also meant the heart of those people as well. So we were, we wanted to go by tube, by underground. Uh, to Grand, Station, uh, Grand Central Station. We couldn't get into the underground because the machine was broke. It was a holiday. There was nobody working there as far as we could see. So we lined up in the miserable weather to get on the bus. There was a, uh, a bus driver, female, about 300 pounds, and absolutely miserable. So we go on there, and the first thing she says is, where's your MetroCard? card?" And we don't have a MetroCard. We've got cash. Can we give you cash? No, we don't need cash. Thank you very much. Well, we started walking off the bus again, you know, absolutely heartbroken. And she said, hey, wait a minute, who told you to get off my bus? Right. Well, I said, said, we don't have a metro car. Well, she said, sit over there. Well, she sat over there, and she said, where are you going to? I said, we're going to Grand Central Station. We couldn't get into the train station and so on. She said, come on, I'll I'll take you there. We don't stop in front of it, but we'll, we'll stop there in front of the station for you. And she took us there. She let us stop down. Uh, didn't ask us for any fare to pay. Gave us a whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of uh, timetables and stuff, and he said, "Next time you get stuck at the station at uh, the subway station, you can't get in. This is what you do." Yeah. Now, as I got out of that bus, uh, I remembered an incident in when I first took up a job. I'd emigrated from England to Canada, and I first took up a job in an accounting firm. The senior partner who had established the firm was absolutely miserable. He was about six foot, so everybody said. He was six foot tall, plus um, broad shoulders, uh, hardly said anything to anybody, but he just gave everybody these terrible looks as though uh, you know, they'd done everything wrong. Well, I got fed up in my office. I was in as a manager. I had this great big glass front, and I was, I was just really fed up with uh, the accounting I was doing. I decided to take a break, got myself a jigsaw puzzle, and put it on a table in front of me. And the jigsaw puzzle was completely red. There was no picture, completely red. People kept walking up and down, watching me sit there, doing my jigsaw puzzle, and they said, you know, um, the boss won't be happy about this. Right. uh, You know, because you're you're not really doing any accounting. Well, eventually the guy comes in and he says, hey, this is all a mess, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, uh, I said, well, I'll put the jigsaw puzzle away. He said, no, no, you're doing it all wrong. He went straight from being six (laughs) foot tall to about three feet because he went on his knees. They said, this is how you do a jigsaw puzzle. We do this at our home every Christmas. You have to get the end pieces first. Then you have to put all the pieces together that are the same size. Now, everybody kept walking up and down, up and down, (laughs) looking at us and saying, what the hell is going on here? You know, we became the best of friends who would take me to hockey is he'd ask me out for lunch, and, and that's how my relationship started. So the whole point of these stories is you, you look at people through what you've been brought up to look at them as stereotypes. At the end of the day, they're not stereotypes. We, life is a prism. We have to learn to be able to shift that prism so it reflects the light and colors that we wish to see.
2: You, that, is, that is absolutely right. You know, I, I, I couldn't agree more, and I've actually found myself on a bus in New York, in Brooklyn, in Bedford-Syveson, which is not a very friend. neighborhood. Wood didn't used to be a friendly neighborhood. Same thing happened. A couple of tourists, we just kind of drift on the bus, then we go to shuttle off, and, and you'd expect them to just throw you out. you expect to feel their foot on, the, on your back as you step out of the bus.
1: Absolutely.
2: And then it, it, the, it, it's a completely different scenario. And um, I, I think that uh, that's the beauty of this of this book, you know. And I, I love the fact that you have the heart of New York. You said you've got three others uh, kind of lined up. Are they, do they take place in different cities, or
1: is absolutely? The- so the this next one, which will be out in October, I'm almost on my last chapter, is called The Vanished Gardens of Cordova. Now this takes place in a summer holiday where I took my kids to England. From England, we went to Gibraltar. From Gibraltar, we took a train in the hinterland of Spain, keeping away from the British rowdy tourists. Mm -hmm. Uh, We went to uh, Seville. From Seville, we went to Cordoba. And from Cordoba, Granada, Granada to Barcelona, Barcelona to Madrid. But most of it was really my wife's idea uh, to look at the Muslim heritage um, that took place in Spain when the Arabs ruled Spain for over 400 years. So it was a matter of looking and comparing an old civilization like uh, like the Muslim world, the Arab world, and comparing it to the modern world. And again, looking at contrasts uh, and comparisons as well. Like, what I thought most was that the the Arabs had brought in so much beauty at that time. they were leaders in civilization, so they, it wasn 't just warfare; it was things like um, medicine, mathematics, poetry, architecture. The Spanish, when they took back their, 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 their from the Arabs, virtually destroyed everything the arabs had uh, because they, and they turned all of the mosques into uh, cathedrals and churches it wasn 't until recently that they tried to restore all of these things back. And I think the reason why they did it was the economy was so bad. The Spaniard, the modern Spanish-, Spanish, wanted to bring tourists, attract tourists. And therefore, they decided that this was the way to go.
2: That's interesting. It's very and interesting. It was, we, we've got a call for you. Let, let me go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Well, I don't know,
0: I guess, who you're talking to. I was just calling for an update on the uh, Okay.
2: Well, um... So I, I I find I love the the premise of your books I I think it, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, we're going to take a quick break uh, a quick two minute break and then we're going to continue the conversation with Emil Rem uh, on his book uh, The Heart of New York that that's out now and then um, we're also going to talk about. <laughs> Uh, something else that I, I find interesting as well, and that is uh, taking time. This is The Morning Drive on FM 96.3 and AM 620. newscock, WVMT.
0: We are back on The Morning Drive and continuing our discussion now with Emil Rem. He has written a book called The Heart of New York. We're going to get into another talk, topic with him in just a moment here, too. But, Emil, I just wanted to ask you, um, can you give us a little flavor about the chapter 10, which is entitled Demented? Just give us a little flavor of what that one
1: was. Well, my, my father was one of the most popular places in the sea town that we lived in, in Africa. And he stayed virtually all his life. And he came to Canada because I had come to Canada. I sponsored him. And he, in a matter of two or three months, his whole mind went. Now, you imagine at the age of 83, he was living on his own. He had two or three little jobs along the way, loved his life. And then all of a sudden, we get a call from his caretaker, from the building uh, care- caretaker saying, we found him in the elevator. He didn't know where he was. Oh, goodness. And he said, sorry, we can't leave him in his apartment building. He has, to, he has to leave within 30 days. We had to go around finding a place for him to stay in and eventually found a, 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 a locked place for uh, people suffering from dementia. And all of the effort to try and put him into a home, and again, he'd written no will, he'd given us no directions. We tried, but nobody would help us uh, from the government or from that until we had got powers of attorney over the person. So... It really brought home, in a matter of about a month, it really brought home um, the difficulty overnight of, of someone having, having dementia and having to deal with it.
2: Mm. That's, um, that, that, that's uh, it's heartbreaking, and, and it happens so quickly. Uh, it's, it's just got to be, it just compounds it.
0: Yes, it does. Now, Emil, another thing that you've talked about, and it's sort of been phrased this way, that in the midst of unexpected detours and incessant interruptions in life, that you have discovered the true value in these moments um, of of uh, doing nothing. I mean, we all talk about like, oh, you always got to be doing something. So tell us what you mean by that.
1: I work like typical public accountants. We are always given almost impossible deadlines that we assume we have to take on, whether they're realistic or not. We never seem to stand up and say, hey, we can't do this. It'll take us an extra week. So I wake up at five in the morning on a Sunday to say, hey, I'm going to catch up with all of my work, a bunch of deadlines. At least I'll be on top of it. My wife wakes up and says, oh, uh, Emil, uh, can you drive me to the farm, which is about an hour and a half away? I need to pick up some homemade Muffet. We go there, and on the way to the can we have breakfast? And then, she come, and then we come back home, and my son wants to drive to the university. He woke up late. By the time I finished, the whole day, in my, from the accountant's point of view, was wasted. But you know what? The day was absolutely gorgeous. We were able to spend time with my wife. Normally, we're always rushing between breakfast and, and supper. Um, where we have five or ten minutes between each other before we go off and do our own thing. Here we have an hour and a half each way to be able to talk about whatever she wanted, she felt comfortable, and we were able to connect. Even with my son, my son hardly ever asked me for anything. He's always got his buddies. You know, to be able to drive him to to school was another opportunity uh, to be able to get to know him better. And I'm sitting there uh, at the farm with my wife while my wife is going out picking uh, Saskatoon berries. I'm sitting there on a veranda overlooking the site. I've got an ice cream, a homemade ice cream, Saskatoon ice cream in one hand. I've got this homemade lemonade in the other. And there's nothing for me to do. I'm just sitting there with my legs up and just enjoying it. And you know, 15 and 20 years or 30 years from now, I am going to savor that moment. Do you think how many tax returns do you think will go in my mind in twenty or thirty years that I will have remembered that would have done on that day?
2: That's a great way of uh, that's a great way of keeping it in perspective because, um, you know, you you I just read uh, an article about a pretty successful entertainment guy, but he he compartmentalizes it. He works forty hours a week and he talks a, very similar in the time that you spend. Uh, and 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 we're and really respecting the time that you have, and taking the time that you spend, and thinking about it because you're right. Thirty years from now, you're not you. You're an accountant. You're not going to remember all those tax returns that were on this deadline that you had to keep. You're going to remember enjoying the afternoon on the veranda, and yeah. and it and it really does put it into perspective when you're you know you just have to step back and and live in the moment, as you say. Yep. No, I, I, think, uh, I think that's interesting, and I, and I think I loved how it, it all weaves together with, with the concept of your books, too, because you go on these trips, but yet it's the time together then the paths you take, you know, conversations or, or, or journeys that really are what comes out of it.
1: That's absolutely right. There is, you know, joy and misery in life are so closely intertwined. Now, there's a Bob Newhart that I used to love, which is called the Button-Down Mind. It was an LP I bought my, uh, a long, long time ago. And in there, he's diffusing a bomb. And he's been given instructions. It says, well, one bomb is a green, uh, one wire is a, uh, a grayish-blue, and the other one is a bluish-gray make sure you don't pull the pull the, uh, the wrong one because the thing will blow up in front of you. And that's what life is. Life is intertwined with joy and with a- absolute misery at times. Once your eyes get caught on, on that particular misery, you don't have time to be able to look at the joy. And, and they're so close, they're so intertwined that you've got to be able to distinguish the two and pick the right ones for yourself. I could have gone off that bus um, in New York and said, oh, these people in New York are absolutely miserable. And look at the way they treated us. And yet, look what happened. And it's the same thing as making connection uh, with my boss um, in, in Calgary as well. You know, we, we once, within a few minutes, we make up our minds what a person is. We may have them in our lives for the next 20 or 30 years. We always see them in that one blinkered perspective. You know, it's time to be able to look at all of our friends and all our relationships and look at them in a different way. Now, going back to this business of wasting time, another thing that it does that's so important is it pulls you away from what you are doing because we, no matter what we do, we get ourselves into a rut of doing the same thing over and over again in the same way over and over again. Sitting there with having nothing to do and having an ice cream in one hand and that lemonade in the other hand makes you look at your life and makes you look at the things that might be missing and ways to be gives you the time and space to be able to look at that to change it in some way for the better. You know, my kids tell me that they're bored. I say, good for you. Go and be bored. It's good for you. And they look at me like I'm an alien.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and well, I get the point that you're, you're yeah. making here, looking at some of the bullet points you talk about, saying constantly chasing deadlines can lead to burnout and stress. And there's no doubt so many of us face some kind of stress at some point and, and need to take a step back, as you suggest.
1: Well, it's not just that. It, you, it's an attitude. And the attitude is you've got to do 50 things, cram 50 things in a day you know full well you can only do 15 of these and when you do 15 you've done tremendously well but you but you always complain yourself because you don't concentrate on the 15 you concentrate on the things that you've missed right and you know we we set up our own artificial deadlines we we are never ever taught or understand that we can change those those parameters can change You know, if I I could have easily have phoned my client and said, hey, you know what? I've had a really busy week. I can't get your work done on Monday. It's Sunday today. Can you give me a week? And you know what? I think they would have given me a week. But the moment you start taking these impossible deadlines on, your clients get used to that.
0: Right.
1: And, And it's not this first deadline that you're trying to bring over. It leads to a whole bunch of almost impossible deadlines that you never put a stop to. And who suffers in the end? It's not your family. It's yourself. Because you've never made that time to be happy and to be at peace with yourself. And I'm sure that that not only leads to stress, I think in my father's case, it may have led to his dementia as well. Because he barely had time for me because he had all of these other little rinky-dinky jobs that he was doing along the way to keep himself happy and be independent. But look what happened in the end.
0: No doubt that stress can have a terrible impact on you. All right, Emil Ram, uh, thanks for being on the Morning Drive today. He has written a book called The Heart of New York, Stories of Loss, Redemption, and Family. It's a good book, and uh, we'll look forward to the new new books coming up this fall, too, right?
1: Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thank,
2: thank you. you so much, Emil. That was, uh, it was good, and it uh, struck a bit, a little close to home for me. So thank you very much.